Should people be allowed to sell their organs? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Stacy Taylor. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is James Stacy Taylor. James is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of New Jersey. His areas of interest include applied ethics, especially medical ethics and the morality of markets, and ethical theory. He has authored numerous op-eds on bioethical issues, which have appeared in publications like the Los Angeles Times, the New York Daily News, and USA Today. He was branded a heretic by the London Times after publishing a book in favor of legalizing markets in human organs called Steaks and Kidneys, Why Markets in Human Organs Are Morally Imperative, and that will inform a lot of our conversation today. In each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the discussion leads us. So let's kick it right off. Should people be allowed to sell their organs? Yes, they should. Done. Episode's over. So I think that people should most certainly be allowed to sell their organs for two reasons, two main reasons. The first one is the United States, Canada, almost every country on the face of the earth has a chronic shortage of human organs available for transplant. And this means that if you, for example, need a kidney, you have end-stage renal disease, then you're going to have to undergo long-term dialysis, waiting for somebody to die so that you can secure one of their organs. If we legalize a market in human organs, then we can simply have people go out or their insurance companies go out and find individuals who are willing to sell organs to them, the insurance companies or Medicare or Medicaid or the Canadian Health Service can then secure all the organs that they need and distribute them to persons in accordance with their medical needs. So this is going to really help people who actually need organs and is also going to help people who are impoverished and might wish to sell their organs. After all, exchange is always a two-way street. People receive organs and in return, they provide the financial resources for people who are giving up organs. So everybody wins. And I don't see that there'll be any losers here and so we ought to legalize markets in human organs. So let's talk a bit about what the structure of that market might look like. Because I think, uh, and I think in your book as well, uh, you make a point of exploring that. So we should definitely explore it here. Some people might immediately think when you say a market for organs, uh, they're going to paint a sort of cartoon in their head where they think of someone in a back alley with a saw and people running around behind this, the 7-Eleven exchanging uh, body parts and organs. So maybe we should explore a little bit what you mean by a market. Right. Certainly won't be somebody sidling up to you in a bar and saying, do you want to buy a kidney? <laughs> Not going to happen. Um, a market in organs will be a fairly radical change in one respect. We'll have a market in organs, but it'll also be a pretty minor change in other respects. So when I say a market in organs, what I'm envisaging is we'll have exactly the same protocols in place as we currently do for people donating their organs. It's just that there'll be money involved as well. So people will have to go to hospitals, they'll be evaluated both psychologically and physically to see if they're a good match to be an organ vendor rather than an organ donor. The people who will be buying organs won't be the individuals who need them, so it won't be a one-to-one, person-to-person type of exchange. Instead, the typical purchasers will be insurance companies, there'll be Medicare, Medicaid, Canadian Health Services, there'll be the organizations and institutions that currently pay for very large, expensive medical bills. So if you're covered by a government insurance program in either the United States or Canada, 
and that is currently paying for your dialysis, that will be the entity that will seek out somebody to purchase a kidney from and will then distribute a kidney to you. So just as we don't see people going and paying for their own dialysis, we won't see people going and paying for their own kidneys. So it'll be a radical change in that now we'll be giving people cash for kidneys, but it'll also be a very conservative change in the sense that all the procedures and protocols that we currently have for organ donation will remain the same. So uh, before we get into some like uh, objections that may pop into people's minds immediately to this proposition as they're listening to that, I want to talk first about what some people's immediate reaction to this would be. You know, um, if some people have sort of an immediate moral no answer to this, like this is a bad idea, we shouldn't quote, let people do this sort of thing. You kind of start off a bit of a discussion in your book where you talk about it's semi-analogous to uh, how we, we have, don't have a problem with people working dangerous jobs, for instance. Uh, so right. if anyone's going to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction to this might be dangerous and here's all the reasons why people shouldn't be allowed to do it, you say there's a lot of other areas in our society where we just shrug our shoulders if someone knows the risks and assumes them. Yeah. So if you have, say, somebody who wants to work on high steel construction, which is an extremely dangerous occupation, we're perfectly willing to let them do it. We usually would like them to be informed of the risks. I'm not aware that there's any requirements that people who go into high steel construction are informed of the risks. So in that respect, kidney markets will actually be better than high steel construction because we'll expect the vendors to go through the usual series of informed consent procedures, which we usually don't for other types of dangerous occupations. So... If we're concerned about people taking on risk for money, we allow that already. So this is just an extension of that. And a lot of the argument to allow people to uh, do this, to sell their organs or enter that sort of market, also revolves around the, the whole principle of autonomy. And it's a very that's a very tricky thing. And, and you explain that in your book. And without me popping open the book and reading it here, perhaps you can give us sort of the uh, brass tacks or spark notes on how to deal with the issue of autonomy in this situation. Because you do also in your book say the issue of autonomy doesn't allow us to then say, oh, then the, the market should be unregulated and people should do whatever they want. So maybe you should go a bit into, into that as well. So the concern about autonomy is from a pro-market perspective, that usually we value autonomy fairly highly. We want people to do as they wish to pursue their own desires and values, so long as they don't actually infringe upon the rights of other people. And that's a value which most people hold very, very highly, both in Canada, the United States, elsewhere in the West. So the pro-market position is fairly straightforward. If you have a willing buyer, an insurance company and a willing seller, somebody who wishes to sell a kidney, then they should both be allowed to pursue their own interests. They can sell and purchase organs. But there might be restrictions on this. So we might say that people ought not to be allowed to exercise their autonomy if they don't really know what they're getting into, for example. So we might say that if there's a significant danger of bodily injury or death, we might require people to demonstrate that they know that there is that danger and they know the risks involved before we allow them to pursue that particular course of action. So I think that we can regulate markets in kidneys, but we'll regulate them just as we regulate donors. So if you wanted to give up a kidney, now you would go into a hospital and they would make sure that you knew what you were getting into. They would tell you what the risks are, you would always be allowed to back out if you change your mind until the moment when the kidney gets removed. 
And I think those sort of regulations should be imposed also on a market for kidneys. So the reason why an unregulated market for organs or kidneys, for instance, would be unacceptable in your view is basically that when it comes to the issue of autonomy, there's a lot of circumstances in a completely unregulated market that may see you not making informed decisions. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So you might have somebody who's really desperate for money. They don't really know what selling the kidney is involves. They might not even know what a kidney actually is. and they go into the they go into the operating theater not really knowing what they're getting into. That I can see would have serious deleterious consequences for the donors. So that's the sort of situation that we want to avoid. People getting into things which are irrevocable in ignorance of what they're actually doing. And uh, before we sort of jump into, like, as I was alluding to before, some of the uh, standard objections to this, everything we're talking about here so far, I want to make sure we define a term properly as well, because you do it in the book, and I thought the exploration was very interesting, and because the word will probably come up in our conversation, and I'll use it, and perhaps sloppily, so I want you to set it straight. And that word is yeah. and that word is coercion. You said there's a very specific definition of coercion. It might not be the way it's, it's colloquially used, the way we use it every day, so maybe you can get a bit into exactly what coercion is, and, and how you use it and how we might be using it in this conversation. Yeah. So coercion actually has a has a very precise meaning. And it's easier to work into this by giving a couple of examples. So a highwayman, I understand Canada has a huge problem with highwaymen. A highwayman approaches you, points a gun at your head and says, your money or your life. And you would sensibly give up your money in order to avoid being shot by the Canadian highwayman. So that seems to be a paradigm case of coercion. You've been coerced into giving up your wallet. You weren't going out looking for somebody to give your wallet to. You were just forced or coerced by the highwayman into handing over your wallet unwillingly. So now we've got to look at why is this actually a case of coercion? And it seems pretty clear that it's a case of coercion because you're faced with an unpalatable range of choices. That's got to be part of why this is coercive. You could be shot, you could hand over your wallet. Both of these are un unappealing to you. And so you take the least worst course of action. You give over your wallet to avoid being shot. But somebody might say you're still acting completely freely because faced with an unpalatable range of choices, you've pursued the course of action which is the least unpleasant here. And that seems reasonable. But that leads us to an odd situation because then we'll say, you come back, you go back to your friends, you're drinking Molson, and you're complaining that your wallet was stolen by a Canadian highwayman. And they say, well, what's the problem? You acted completely freely. Sure, it sucked to be faced with them, but you just gave up your wallet and that was sensible. What's the problem? And that seems weird. We don't really want to say that your life was just as free on that day as it was on every other day. So here's how I think we reconcile the two intuitions that we have. On the one hand, we want to say that you were coerced, but your autonomy was compromised in some way. But the highwayman did something wrong, and he forced you to give up your wallet. But on the other hand, we might want to say, faced with an unpalatable range of alternatives, you choose for least unpleasant, and so you chose and acted freely. So it seems like there's two different intuitions here which are in tension with each other. 
Does that make sense? I think it does. So I guess something would be coercive, not only if someone were to feel pressure, because we may feel pressure in our everyday lives for a variety of reasons, maybe something, even a bit of guilt if you haven't visited a relative over, over a certain period of time. Maybe that, you know, I wouldn't call that coercion, but some, some might, you know, there's something that you feel pressure to do something. Right. So I guess the narrowing down of the range of options, and I think you've explored this in your book as well, that's also a key part of coercion too, right? Someone not only pressures you to do something or convinces you of it, but uh, in in the example of, of the at gunpoint robbery, uh, this person has not only forced you to choose something, but they've also completely narrowed down your range of options as well. And and that's that's a really nice way of putting it because not only have they narrowed down your range of options, but they've narrowed down your range of options in order to get you to do something that they want you to do. Right. Right. So in the highwayman case, the highwayman has narrowed down your range of options. And they're trying to get you to make a particular decision. They're trying to get you to decide to do what the high woman wants you to do, right? So we could say, to go back to the two intuitions that seem to be intention, on the one hand, you're coerced, you're not really acting freely. On the other hand, you're choosing freely from a range of options. We could say that you're autonomous or you're free with respect to your decision. So you're the one who makes the decision to give up to the highwayman. But the decision that you make is to hand over control of your actions to the highwayman. So the highwayman now controls what it is that you do, and he does so because you've decided to cede control to the highwayman. Does that make sense? I think it does, yeah. And and, be, and before we, we leave this part of this conversation again to a few more specifics, I just want to clarify, would it be fair to say that your general position uh, when it comes to the markets for organs or kidneys, the way you've described it, the reason why um, it's uh, a, a good thing, among other reasons, is also that it expands people's options, that it's not really yeah, limiting absolutely. them, if it's structured properly, of course, as you right. were describing. Right. To put it sort of really colloquially, we could say that markets expand people's options you now have the option to sell a kidney or to buy a kidney whereas coercion effectively limits person's options so coercion works by limiting options markets works works by expanding options right and and i think just to jump in one of the important aspects of coercion is that it requires another person to be doing it so it, you, in order to be coerced, you have to decide to give up control over your actions to the highwayman, right? So the highwayman is now controlling what you do. Right. He could say, give me your wallet. He could say, dance a Scottish jig. He could say, drink some maple syrup, whatever it is. But highwayman force people to do in Canada, hand over your fuzzy peaches, something <laughs> like that. So... Coercion requires another person, another agent to be coercing you. And I think that's really important because a lot of people say, well, poor people will be coerced by their economic situation into selling their kidneys. And I think that's utterly wrong because when somebody decides from a range of unpalatable options where they're not faced with another agent directing them to do something, they're actually making their own decisions. They're acting perhaps in a unfortunate situation, but they're still acting fully autonomously given the range of options that they have. So they're not, poor people aren't actually coerced into selling up their organs unless you envisage physicians and Canadian health services breaking down people's doors and forcing them at gunpoint. But clearly that wouldn't be a market, that would be organ theft, not organ sale. So if we're allowing an organ market, 
people will be willingly selling their organs. They won't be coerced. They'll be pursuing what for them is the best option that's available. I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So the way we're discussing it here and defining it here and as we're exploring just the, the element of coercion, then one thing you said towards the end of your statement there, I want to make sure I clarify. So a circumstance in and of itself can't be considered coercion the way you're talking about it here today. Absolutely. So if, if it's preferable to have, you know, six options, but someone for a variety of reasons in their life only has three options, they're not necessarily being coerced because no one has come there and made the situation like that. Another agent hasn't, to use your language. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we might say that their autonomy, if they have a very limited range of options, isn't as valuable to them because they can't do as much as somebody who has more options available to them can do. So we might say that their autonomy is not limited, but it's not as valuable. But the correct response to that, I think, isn't to limit their options even further. It's to try to give them more options. And one of those options could be to sell a kidney, to sell blood, to sell plasma, and so forth, to sell parts of their bodies. Right. That's going to make them better off, not worse off. So ultimately, we're, we're talking about uh, expanding people's decision-making process. That's what a, a kidney, uh, a market for kidneys would be able to do for everybody. You touched on it before, and now let's jump into some specific objections. I think we definitely have time to explore one before the break. So, And I know the people listening are going to say, when is this guy going to stop this madman? So let, let's go with it if they don't agree with you. So let's talk about the rich exploiting the poor. You touched on it before, but uh, but let's let's go a little deeper. So that's going to be many people's immediate reaction to this, that the uh, rich people in a market for kidneys would uh, basically, whether it's directly or through institutions, ultimately be using poor people as uh, as just a, a source of supplies for themselves. They can afford it. They can purchase it. The system that's rich could purchase it. But, but the poor person is ultimately, quote, in these people's minds, forced to give up their organs for richer people. Right. I think that's a really good objection until you start to think carefully about how organ sales would actually function. So that objection has this view that you've got really rich people who can afford to buy kidneys and afford to have transplants, and they're going out and they're buying kidneys, and the people who are selling are poor people who are being forced. So the idea has something like this. You've got all of these rich people who are just tired of collecting Ferraris and gold plating their bathrooms, and now they've decided, what can I buy now? Let's buy some organs. Because I've drunk so much champagne, my liver and my kidneys are now packing up. I'll go get some from, my, from some poor people. And maybe I'll just buy some and put on my desk. You know, why not? I've got money to burn. But that's just not how the market's going to work. The market would actually work rather like this. The, it won't, again, be a person-to-person -person transfer. So you won't have somebody who's wealthy with organ failure going out and trying to find somebody who's poor who's selling the kidney. That's how the black market works. That's not how a legal regulated market would work. A legal regulated market would have insurance companies, maybe private insurance companies or government insurance companies, like government healthcare, purchasing the organs. So the purchasers will be insurance companies and government entities who cover healthcare. That means that the people who are covered by insurance companies and government entities, including people who are relatively poor, are going to act as purchasers. So we're not just going to have the richest purchasers, we'll also have the comparatively poor also being purchasers through their insurance companies or their government programs. And it might be true, but typically people who will be selling will be the poor. 
But that overlooks that that means that the people who are impoverished will be getting a sizable amount of cash or something comparable. So they might be getting cash. They might get, be getting enhanced health care as part of the package. They might be getting significant educational credits to go to college or for their children to go to college and so on. So this is a situation where people covered by insurance and either government provided or privately provided insurance will be the buyers. And that will be rich people as well as the comparatively poor. And the people who will be selling, that is getting significant amounts of cash or largely or very valuable cash equivalents, will be people who are comparatively poor. So the poor people will now be able to be lifted up out of poverty or out of comparative poverty, provided with better access to healthcare, better access to education. And persons who are comparatively poor, middle class and rich will now be secure in the kidneys that they would otherwise be denied access to. So I think this is a wonderful thing. Now, somebody might say there's going to be people who aren't covered by insurance. Right. Who don't have access to government programs because they fall in the book. That's absolutely true. And I think that for somebody like me who favors markets, we have to make it really clear that I'm not offering a panacea. There's going to be people who are not made better off by this particular approach. But notice that the people we're talking about, the people who don't have access to healthcare, have fallen through the cracks in one way or another, the very poor, the very disenfranchised are going to be people who currently don't have access to healthcare. These are people who now are not going to be getting dialysis. They're not going to be receiving kidney transplants now because by hypothesis, they're the people who have fallen through the cracks. So my program or my proposal won't make those people better off, but it's not going to make them any worse off than they currently are either. Right. I think that's a really, really important point that you touched on as well, is that you're not being a fantasist about this. You're saying on net, uh, basically, that more people will benefit uh, from this proposal than not. You're not saying, oh, great, if we had a market for organs, everyone who needed an organ would have one and everyone would be rich. Like, that's not what you're saying. Yeah. And we'll also, and I also think that I have to note that there will be some people who might even be made worse off. So I can imagine that somebody would sell a kidney, they have unforeseen complications, and either they're permanently disabled or they die. And that's going to be a cost that this particular program will actually impose on people. But that's true now of people who donate kidneys. They might also undergo unforeseen complications. They might have chronic problems or they might die. But I think to be intellectually honest, we have to note that there will be some people who will be made worse off under my proposal who would be better off if it wasn't instituted. But as you put it, on net, on aggregate, people are going to be made much, much better off. And you did touch on it before. You said that ultimately it probably would end up that comparatively poor people would be predominantly the sellers and right. other people would be benefiting. But when it comes to that situation, I guess some people would still say, well, there's an element of not coercion in our conversation, because we've already talked about that before, but there's another element of unfairness or injustice, uh, because ultimately what you have is a situation where someone wouldn't be giving up their kidney uh, unless the system made it possible. And then they might view that the fact that people have two kidneys is a good thing. So so they definitely view that as just simply an unfair situation. And I know we covered coercion before, but um, I, is there anything to that argument or anything to that proposition that ultimately someone having their body fully intact, however it was given to them at birth, is, is a good thing and disrupting that 
simply because someone might need money is is a bad thing to encourage or incentivize. So I do see the force of that objection, but I would like to give two responses to it. And the first response is a little bit of it's a little bit of a glib response. We might say, let's look not just at the distribution of money, but let's look at the distribution of kidneys. Isn't it really unfair that some people have two perfectly functioning kidneys and they only need one? And other people don't have any functioning kidneys at all. Look at the unfairness here. And my proposal allows that unfairness to be rectified. We now allow a more equitable distribution of kidneys. We have somebody like you who's presumably sitting there with spare kidneys that they're not even using. And there's some poor people who are dying for want of a kidney. So my system might give a more fair allocation of kidneys. We'll have kidneys flowing from people who have a surplus of kidneys over to people who have a dearth of kidneys. So if we look at kidneys, this might be fairer. Now, somebody might say, sure, but there's also money. And this is where we lead into the second response. To be sure, we're going to have kidneys flowing from people who are impoverished to people who are wealthy. But we're going to have cash flowing from people who are wealthy to people who are impoverished. And the cash is going to flow to people who value the money more than value the physical integrity of their body. So I think that's something that people should be allowed to decide on their own. Because as you cashed out the objection, you said, well, we value the integrity of the body. But that's not always true. So lots of people engage in tattooing or scarification or other forms of bodily modification. And I think that's absolutely fine if they want to do it. Here we have people who would not otherwise form an action, giving up a kidney, being encouraged to do so through money, and they decide that seems like the best option for me. I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a break. We've reached that point. So everyone, we're here on The Curious Task with uh, James Stacy Taylor, and we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're talking with James Stacy Taylor. J- James, before the break, um, we were talking about some specific objections people might have to a structured market for organs. So we covered uh, a lot of them very well at, at the front half of the conversation. So I, w- I want to keep going on the same track we were on. So we covered a discussion about uh, would a market for kidneys or organs uh, be a situation where the rich would be exploiting the poor? I'd like to move on to another objection that people may have to, to the overall market for organs or kidneys, specifically um, ignorance in the decision-making process that some people say, fine, James, we accept all your arguments about uh, autonomy and that how a market for kidneys would be, or organs would not be uh, coercion and that it is expanding people's choice. But is there not a, a moral problem or, or a problem of justice if people are ignorant in the decision-making process? That is to say, and I I think it's fair to say here that not everyone's an expert on biology. Not everyone is an expert on the human body. So they might think 100K or something like that is, is, is a good price for their kidney and just go into something willy-nilly. So that is to say this might in, in, uh, induce, let's call it, reckless kidney donation with no regard to oneself. So what would you say to something like that? I, I would say I think that's a perfectly sensible 
and reasonable worry about a kidney market. But notice that ignorance of biology, ignorance of the physiological effects of removing a kidney can be rectified through education. And that's what we do now with people who want to be organ donors. We educate them as to the risks, as to the long-term consequences of what happens when we give up a kidney, how it's important to stay to a particular medical regimen after they've given up a kidney until they're fully healed and so forth. So we would do exactly the same with kidney vendors. And incidentally, I think this is one of the really nice ways of defending a market in kidneys, in that we actually now praise people who give up kidneys. So if you give up a kidney to a stranger, we'll say how wonderful you are, we'll put you into the local newspaper, and we'll laud you as a hero. And nobody says, that's just terrible. He probably didn't know what he was doing. So there, we actually know that we assume that you've gone through a process where your informed consent has been given and you still want to do this. Kidney sales will be exactly the same. It's just that there'll be money exchanged. So rather than giving you a little sort of medal saying, awesome kidney donor 2019, we'll give you $120,000 in cash. And frankly, I think $120,000 in cash sounds much better than a medal. That's why we'll get more kidneys. Right, unless the medal was made of gold or something like that, which you could exchange, but that's yeah. a different story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and then we might just be paying people in gold medals. We'll just have a really inefficient barter market going on. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so so to, to illustrate that a little further, you wouldn't see, because you are ultimately a proponent of some, or structured and regulated market for organs or kidneys if, if this were to happen. So for instance, you wouldn't be opposed to somebody as an example, having to go to like a week course or something like that on what, what the effects are for donating a kidney and they'd have to pass an exam at the end of that or something. I'm not saying that'd be the best way to go. I'm saying something like that is not immediately objectionable in, from your point of view. Not like it. And probably it wouldn't just be a week-long course. We'll require people to go in for intensive conversations with medical staff every time they go into testing to see to test their blood, their lipids, their haplotypes and so forth. So we'd have a lot of long-term testing to make sure that the person is healthy and suitable to donate. And we'll also put them through various psychological tests to make sure that they're aware of what's going on, that there's none, there isn't some sort of odd pathology which drives them to give up a kidney and so forth. So I think requiring that is absolutely perfectly fine. I think it was interesting earlier brought up the fact if someone donates a kidney and they're in the local paper, people go, oh, what a great thing. But if somehow we changed the story around and said someone had sold their kidney for $100,000, people might think, oh, that, that's, that's just bad. And it's funny to me, I guess, it really hammers home the point the way you put it in a very concise way that ultimately the process is what's just or moral, how someone gets to a point where they're going to give up a kidney. If money, just because money would enter the equation doesn't make it immoral or, or, uh, or basically a, a negative thing. So that was a very interesting thing you brought up because it's true. I don't think I've actually ever heard someone say that it's bad that someone donated a kidney from the idea that, okay, a kidney's leaving their body. No one really has an objection to that. And notice that when people donate kidneys, they often do it because a relative or a close friend requires a kidney. So they're in a situation where they're subject to an awful lot of pressure, just as you might say somebody might be subject to financial pressure. So if your sister's going to die unless you give up a kidney, it's going to be really, really, really hard for you to say, no, I want my body to remain intact. There's going to be a lot of family pressure pushing you to give up that kidney. And if we allow a market, notice that a lot of people are going to be relieved about family pressure. Mm. Now, it's not going to be the case that you have to give up a kidney or your sister dies because it's possible that she might secure a kidney from a stranger 
full cash. Right. So, so we're back to the idea that this market, a structured market for this kind of thing is actually, once again, expanding people's set of options rather than limiting them. And in one case, you may uh, be in a situation where everyone looks at you and says, well, you're going to give up your kidney for your sister. In another case, there's actually one that could perhaps be purchased. Right. And I think there's data coming from Iran, which has a structured market in kidneys. But for donations of live related kidneys has decreased once they allowed payment for kidneys. Hmm. And I think that that seems to support my view that people would prefer not to give up a kidney to their relative, but it's the only option possible to save a relative. So of course we do it. But once it's not the only option, people say, well, I don't have to give up a kidney and you can secure a kidney some other way. So maybe that would be a better way for, to do it. It occurs to me as well. So you, you've obviously probably dealt with more than the kind of objections I'm throwing at you if you've done a talk on this or discussion about it. And do, do you find that when people ob- object to a market for kidneys or a market for organs, especially when it comes to people uh, that they say might be comparatively poor, that would be, be the la- predominantly the largest set of suppliers and that sort of thing. Do, do you find that that underneath a lot of these objections is the idea that some of these people actually can't be trusted to make decisions for themselves because it's it's it occurs to me that you have some very good answers to all these objections but i i know a lot of people would remain unconvinced and it, it's always interesting to me to think of what, what's underneath all that below the surface is it really a, an objection to the idea money's being exchanged for a kidney or is it really something else do people have a bit of a paternal approach to this whole situation i think i think that's driving some people they're worried but there's going to be people who are not particularly well-educated selling their kidneys, but these people won't know what they're getting into. And then they might just go off and blow all the money on consumer goods really quickly and then be left at the end of it with no kidney and no money. Rather like that story from a few years ago of a 17-year-old boy in China who sold his kidney in order to get, I think it was an Apple Watch or an iPhone or something, and might look at that and say, well, that's clearly what the poor are going to be doing. They'll just buy big screen TVs, they'll blow through the money, they'll make really bad decisions. And I think that's really misguided in two respects. Firstly, I don't think there's any reason to believe that people who are less financially well off should require additional help from people who are better off. That seems sort of extremely arrogant. And secondly, again, these people who will be kidney sellers will go through an extensive educational process. And if they re- and if we're genuinely concerned that people might blow through money, maybe we've had a kidney market for five years and it turns out that most people who sell a kidney behave like lottery winners. Right? They blow through the money really quickly and tend to be worse off after a few years. We can rectify that if it turns out that that's the case. And I suspect that it's not going to be the case. But if it turns out that it is, We can just give people annuities, or we can give them non-cash transfers, or we can link the cash transfers to certain achievements for educational achievements or employment achievements and so forth. So there's ways we can structure the market, even if you're a dyed-in-the-wool paternalist, to make you very happy about your paternalism. And I must stress, that's not my position. But if you really are a paternalist and you want to guide and direct somebody else's life for them, a regulated market would allow you to do that. And I, and I find it interesting you brought up the lottery because that's the exact thing that came to mind when, when you were going through that statement uh, and explanation because I thought, well, if you really want to take 
this paternalistic idea to its logical conclusion, there's a lot of things that you could be looking oh, yeah. into, uh, either banning or regulating further that um, people might be a quote danger to themselves. And like for instance, the lottery thing is, is a is a big one. We always hear about people winning large sums of money and then later on they're worse off than they were initially. So if people really want to take that to its logical conclusion, you have to look into the lottery as well. Yeah, we should start banning lotteries because people just it just makes people worse off. Exactly. Ultimately, yeah, someone should run the numbers on that and see what actually happens. <laughs> so uh, you've touched on it before, and in that uh, in that train of thought, you did as well, just there. But I want to make sure we we do uh, nail it down. So w- one of the other common objections once again is the danger to the purchaser. I'm not sure how much time we really need to spend on that because I think through the discussion, as I said, you have answered that. Ultimately, if uh, there's danger to uh, to the seller that we can mitigate of a kidney, there's obviously a way we can. Uh, you know, mitigate dangers to the purchasers. Doctors aren't just going to start going throwing kidneys into people's bodies and saying, "Yeah, oh, we bought this one yesterday. It looks good to me." Right. At the moment, we have very, very strict protocols on what sort of kidneys can be transplanted, and we would just keep those in place. So, part of a long-term evaluation of the sellers would be both to protect the sellers to make sure they know what they're getting into, to make sure that there's no underlying physical conditions that nobody suspected, which would put them at risk if they have a kidney removed. But it's also to protect the people who will be the kidney recipients, because we'll be testing to make sure that they don't, the sellers don't have any communicable diseases, that the kidneys are healthy, but the, the recipients will get good, well-functioning kidneys. And this is actually another wonderful advantage of markets in kidneys, because we're likely to get many more kidneys becoming available if we start paying people for them. This works for every single good that we know of. And if we get more kidneys becoming available, then we won't have to turn to substandard kidneys to keep people alive. At the moment, there's such a demand for kidneys and so few kidneys available that transplant teams might be tempted to transplant suboptimal kidneys, kidneys which are medically acceptable for transplant, but which might not be the best kidney to transplant just because it's that kidney or it's nothing, so we'll transplant a suboptimal kidney. So allowing a market in kidneys is actually going to make recipients better off because there'll be a wider variety of kidneys available for transplant and healthier kidneys. And also, it turns out that if we legalize a market in kidneys, we're also going to essentially eliminate the black market in kidneys, where recipients are transplanted with really substandard kidneys, and then they come back to Canada or to the United States, and they go back to their consulting nephrologist and say, I just happen to have got a transplant somewhere, and now I have fungal infections, I've got HIV, the surgery has been botched in various ways, and that's going to impose significant costs upon the healthcare systems that they come back to with these botched nephrectomies. So if we allow a market, nobody who is covered by insurance or by government provision of organs is going to decide to go to India or to Moldova or to Iraq to purchase a kidney because there'd be no need. You would have a perfectly good kidney available to you in Canada. Right. And, and I, it's interesting you, you mentioned the black market, of course, because I think there's a parallel here to those who would be a proponent of, for instance, uh, the drug market, drug selling and buying, et cetera, uh, growing in some cases. They, they would say, uh, you know, you should legalize everything and decriminalize the usage of this stuff. Uh, not only would it bring uh, 
these issues, if people do have drug issues, more into the, the light of society and make it more of a medical issue rather than a criminal issue, but it would also eliminate the black market. That's what a lot of people would tend to say. So I think there's, if some people are okay with that argument there, but not okay with it in the market for kidneys, I think that there's something to be said for that. They should think about that a little more because as you said, there's a large black market argument here as well. Yeah. And we can see why, because if you're on a waiting list for an organ and you're on dialysis and you know that you have maybe three months to live, if you're middle class, you might just say, well, I'll just cash out my savings, I'll go to India, I'll get a black market kidney. The worst that can happen is I die a couple of weeks earlier. The best that can happen is this actually works out and I get to live. So there's a strong incentive for people now to go into the black market. And you really do not want to go to the black market for obvious reasons. It's horrible for recipients and it's horrible for the sellers. They're defrauded, they're they're treated by people who are literally criminal gangs or often from trained medical professionals. It's just a horrible situation. And if we legalize markets, then we'll eliminate the black market. And you mentioned waiting list, and it occurs to me, so that that's the way it is in Canada right now for organ transplants. If you need an lungs, a kidney, you're on a list. And basically, yep. as they become available, which is a euphemism for someone else being in a horrible I car have, crash, yeah. for instance, uh, as, as organs become available, they go down the list. It, there's a lot of ways they construct the list, but but ultimately, it's a waiting list. Um, it, Would you say it's too far of me to then understand from what you're saying that in a way, especially in Canada, where the government is involved in running the health system, that in a way this is coercion because they've limited the amount of options that people can acquire organs. They've put you on a waiting list. They've eliminated possibilities for you. So if you die while you're on a waiting list, is it fair to say that in a way you've been coerced into that situation or is that taking the concept too far in that case? We take it a little bit further and say if you die on a waiting list, you've been killed by the politicians who prevented somebody who would be, have been willing to give you a kidney for money. There you go. It's rather like saying, so imagine a kidney seller being like a lifeguard and you're at a pool and there's people who would need saving. And a kidney seller is like the lifeguard who would dive in and save somebody. The lifeguards are paid. So the lifeguard's paid, he dives in, he saves somebody. Everybody's happy. And in the local newspaper, we now have lifeguard saves John Smith. And everybody's really pleased. And then they, and nobody thinks, well, the lifeguard was paid, so clearly the lifeguard's coerced. That's terrible. We should stop this. We shouldn't have paid lifeguards. We should only have volunteer lifeguards who might or might not show up. And now imagine, to go back to your question about the interference of the government, imagine that you've now got somebody who's willing to be a paid lifeguard and who's an expert lifeguard, and then the government comes along and says, well, you can't do that. You can't serve as a lifeguard. And they say, well, if I can't serve as a lifeguard, I've got to earn money somehow. Someone go off and work at McDonald's. And then the next day, somebody drowns for want of a lifeguard. I would say that the people who coerce the lifeguard into not being a lifeguard, but to go off and work at McDonald's are at least partly responsible for that death. So if you're a politician who votes against legalizing markets in blood plasma or kidneys, then you are responsible in part for the deaths of people who die on the waiting list. In a uh, in a previous episode, we talked to Peter Jaworski about the ethics around uh, 
uh, well, the, the episode was about markets without limits, but he talked a lot about uh, paid blood and plasma in there and how that should be more widespread and how that's a good thing. And I guess ultimately there's sort of a parallel here where he's saying that, number one, if someone gets 20 bucks to donate a bit of blood, we don't look at them or we shouldn't look at them and say, oh, they've been paid. They're not, they're not as generous as someone else. That's number one. But number two as well, if there's politicians blocking the growth of the blood supply, for instance, they actually bear responsibility for people that uh, may die if they need the blood. So that's, there's a parallel here as well obviously it's the the same idea like you said it's not unfair to say that they're participating in a situation that causes more people to die as opposed to less and even if one response what i've heard with respect to blood plasma is well sure canada might not allow payment for blood plasma but it's willing to import so it makes sure that people who need the pharmaceutical products that plasma goes into are actually provided for and that i think is a really disingenuous argument because there's no moral difference between you allowing Canadians to be paid for blood plasma and you buying blood plasma from paid Americans. There's no moral difference there at all. And moreover, if you're having to import your plasma, presumably that's going to make your healthcare costs go up. And if we have a fixed pool of healthcare costs deliberately pursuing a policy that increases costs unnecessarily, means that there are other people who are not going to be getting the medical care that they need as a result of this bizarre anti-market policy. There's a contradiction there if you're okay with the government purchasing blood or, or organs or kidneys on, on on your behalf and then giving you one, but but you not, in, in your mind, being able to buy a kidney from someone else, for instance. If you if you can hold those two things constant, there's a bit of a contradiction there. Uh, in my conversation with Peter, he did like sort of like flippantly say, you know, for those of you who don't know how ethics work, uh, if, if you pay someone else to do something immoral, you're still implicated. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he got it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You could think of it this way, but the Canadian government, the American government, and every other government who is prohibiting markets is essentially paying highwaymen to go around and stop people from transacting in life-saving goods. So imagine that you really need a particular vial of a liquid, and if you drink it, your life will be saved. And somebody is going to sell you that vial of liquid, and you can drink it, and then suddenly a government highwayman appears, points a gun at both of you, and says, no, that transaction can't go through. And then two minutes later, you die. And the highwayman looks at you and says, well, I saved you from yourself. You might be dead, but I've saved you from engaging in this immoral transaction. That strikes me as just absurd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I've actually known someone uh, in my extended family who's been through this process of needing in or like organs in this case it was lungs i've known of other people who've had family members in that situation and ultimately what they want in the situations uh whether it's talking to the doctor or even looking at other means perhaps even if they're just internet searching for curious they're looking for options right so as back yep. to what we were saying before in the conversation this is ultimately about expanding the options available to people as our time is winding down here i want to make sure i don't uh uh, not get a chance to ask uh, to address some of these objections with you here. So um, we covered a lot of them, but there was another one too. We, we, we discussed family pressure before. You might be in uh, in a situation where that, let's say in the Canadian healthcare system where uh, they say, okay, your sister needs a kidney and everyone kind of looks at you. That's kind of a form of family pressure. Right. So if there's a market for kidneys, uh, you know, we expand people's options. But on the other hand, someone might say, uh, well, look, uh, let's say there's a poor family. 
and uh, there's a there's a grandpa, an older mom, an older dad, and then there's the younger oldest son. He's 18, and the market for kidneys opens up, and they kind of just look at him and go, yeah, we could use $100,000. So is, is there a form of, uh, I know we already defined coercion there for this conversation. I'm not going to use, use that uh, word here, but is there a form of unjust persuasion that a market for kidneys or organs could open up in, in, in something like family pressure? Yeah, I think that there might be. And that almost certainly is going to occur in some situations. So people will be subject to family pressure to sell an organ in order to secure additional money. But notice that that type of pressure could occur in many other areas as well. So you might have somebody, as you put it, must be older, elderly parents, and then there, say, two or three children. And the family might say, well, we have certain sexist views. So clearly, the two girls are going to have to go to work and support the boy going to college. That could happen too. Right. But we wouldn't say, well, what we'll do is we'll shut down colleges to make sure that never happens, and we'll also make sure that women can't go into employment. Because we could do that to prevent women being coerced into taking jobs. And we could even go further, and we could say we now have the very, very ultra-feminist Canadian education policy where we prohibit women from taking any job before the age of 25 in order to encourage them not to go into the labor force and to go to higher education. So again, we have a situation here where if people want to take these principles or arguments or logical conclusions, we end up in situations like you're describing. Yeah. That ultimately, if we want to go around policing things like family pressure and making sure that it's alleviated, uh, then we have a lot more to deal with than just kidneys and organ donations. We have to start eliminating pretty much anything that people could be pressured into doing. One other major objection, and a good chunk of your book covers this as well towards the end, um, even if you set aside everything we've already talked about, some people say that there's something inherently wrong if, if we get into a situation where we're commodifying body parts, right? This is the commodification objection right. that that for a variety of reasons, uh, even consequential reasons, we, we get into trouble when we start encouraging people to have attitudes where they're starting to look at themselves or at least their body parts as a commodity. So I wanted maybe you could ex- explain to those listening exactly what the commodification objection is is a little better than I just have if they haven't been exposed to it before, and also give us your answer to that objection as well. The commodification objection is actually, it's a fairly hard to nail down, but in essence, I think you captured it rather nicely. The worry is that people will start to look at themselves and look at others as mere spare parts. So you think that a person is of inherent value or sacred value or infinitely valuable now, but once we start putting a price on people, then we'll start to say, well, you're just a collection of parts and your value as a person is, say, $145,000. So the worry is that if you allow people to start selling body parts, then we'll reduce them to the sum market value of their body parts. And that's all that we will consider them to be worth. And the objection continues and said that would be bad. It would miss out something important and inherently sacred about people. So I think that that's on the face of it, an attractive argument to make. But it's essentially an empirical argument. It's claiming that if we put a price on body parts, then our views of each other will change dramatically. And we've got good evidence that that's just not true. So you might have life insurance, and people who are listening might have life insurance. If they do, then they will be regarded as just horrible people who've commodified themselves or commodified others when life insurance first came out. 
because there is a view that if you start putting insurance on people's lives, then you're essentially saying that's how much the life is worth. And you're reducing people merely to their market value. And you'll start walking around and looking at people differently according to how much their life insurance policy was for. But we just don't do that. It's pretty much irrelevant to us what somebody's life insurance policy will pay out. We don't know this. And so I think that the same response could be given with respect to organ sales. We really don't think that people are just going to be reduced to the sum market value of their organs, just as we don't think that they're reduced to the sum market value of what the life insurance policies would pay out or what the value of their labor is worth. So we typically don't think that there's something lesser about somebody who works a minimum wage job at McDonald's versus somebody who's, say, a highly paid investment banker. In fact, often in popular culture, we might say the guy who works as a mechanic or works at McDonald's is somehow better or more dignified than the person who's an investing investment banker. So I don't think that the argument of commodify, the commodification arguments really hold up because they are essentially empirical arguments. And so we can test them by looking back at how we've treated these things in the past. And so, so ultimately, in your view, although when kidneys are out of people and there's a market for kidneys, the, the kidneys themselves may, may, may be commodified and as they are uh, when they, you put a price on them. But you see no reason to believe that that perspective, that attitude would somehow extend to the way we view other human beings if we allowed for this uh, market in organs or kidneys. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And think of people who make their living by essentially commodifying how they look. Hmm. So you have people who are actors or models, and they've commodified how they look. And there's, I believe, insurance policies on particular features that famous people have, because that's how they make their living. But we don't say that these people are just reduced to the sum of their parts. Or, or, or we certainly shouldn't. Yeah, or we certainly shouldn't. Yeah, I can't really think of anyone that's genuinely said, oh, this person is, as you said, they're on screen for my entertainment. They're an actor. They're a celebrity. Yeah. Uh, that, that's all I think of them as. They have no human value because they, I, I buy a ticket to see their concert. I don't think anyone actually would genuinely say that. Well, there might be people who do it, and usually they turn out to be stalkers, and we consider them to be deeply, deeply creepy and pathologically weird. Right. I, sh- I should say, n- I have no friends of mine that I know of that think that way. <laughs> But normal people don't do that. <laughs> James, uh, it was it was great talking with you today as our time winds down here. I always like to try and bring the episode to a finer point and conclusion if we can. So I always like to say, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether or not people should be allowed to sell their organs? So I think there's two. People should be allowed to sell their organs because it would generate a lot more organs becoming available for people who need them. So people who are on who need transplant organs will be made much better off. Their lives would be saved. And on the flip side, the people who would say act as organ sellers would also be made better off because they'll be exchanging an organ for something they consider to be of much more value. So everybody wins. There's no reason not to legalize markets in human organs. James Stacy Taylor's book, Stakes and Kidneys, Why Markets in Human Organs Are Morally Imperative, uh, formed a lot of our conversation today. You should go find it. It explores this uh, conversation a lot deeper, uh, and it also goes into a lot more detail than we had a ch- chance here today with time given. If you found this interesting, I suggest you, you go check the book. I, I enjoyed it a lot, James, as I was preparing for this podcast, so I, I definitely encourage others to go, go check that out. So uh, thank you very much for speaking with me today on The Curious Task. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. 
Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 